0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Agroinnovations.com podcast, where we deal with all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade, globalization, and organics. As we continue with our focus on agricultural biodiversity, today we're joined by Dr. Suzanne Nelson, Director of Conservation for Native Seeds Search, an organization responsible pr- for protecting native cultivars of the Southwest. So please have a listen as we learn more about these interesting plants. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the agronovations.com podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. As we wrap up this focus on agricultural biodiversity, we're on the line today with Suzanne Nelson. And Suzanne is a professional with native seeds. Suzanne, why don't you start by telling us what your professional background is and how you got involved with native seeds?
1: I'm the Director of Conservation for Native Seed Search, so that means essentially that I oversee all of our conservation programs, which are mostly um, an ex-situ type of program, meaning that the germplasm that we focus our conservation efforts on is mostly managed and maintained off its site of origin or use uh, in a seed bank, for example. I've also had a fair number of in-situ conservation programs over the years, and so I also oversee those efforts. And I got into this really somewhat serendipitously and through um, many years of an odd route, but my first interest in germplasm, particularly for um, small-scale agricultural systems using land-raised types of varieties, really began uh, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala many, many years ago.
0: But I was I was also a Peace Corps volunteer in Bolivia. Oh, yeah! And it turns out a lot of these people that I interview end up being uh, former <laughs> Peace Corps volunteers.
1: Peace Corps volunteers.
0: Yeah. Um well, that's a good group. So, what what is your is your professional background as a geneticist or as a as a plant pathologist or what is your professional background?
1: Well, my um, graduate work um, was in. Essentially, plant sciences. It was called agronomy and plant genetics in those days, but it's essentially a plant science sort of background. So I did my research efforts uh, looking at um, competitive interactions in intercrop systems, the, the sort of traditional systems that are used by many subsistence farmers around the world.
0: Tell us what Native Seeds is and what does it do. A lot of people don't even know that some, that an organization like Native Seeds is out there. So if you could just give us a, a breakdown of what it what its mission is and how it goes about accomplishing that mission.
1: Well, its mission is really to conserve and and promote the um, crop genetic resources from the southwestern U.S. and northwestern Mexico. Uh, in a nutshell, that's its mission. And that mission can be accomplished through a wide variety of different strategies. Predominantly, it's an ex-situ strategy. So, again, um, crop germplasm has been collected over the past 25-plus years of the organization's history. From our main region of focus is the southwestern U.S., consisting mostly of Arizona and New Mexico and northwestern Mexico, with the states of Sonora, Sinaloa, and Chihuahua primarily being where we work. Um, So different crop germplasm from those states on both sides of the border is collected, sort of evaluated, characterized, brought back to a seed bank type of operation here where it's um, healthy samples of the seed are stored under frozen conditions for sort of long-term conservation. And then they're grown out periodically both to replenish and regenerate new seed for freezer samples but then also – uh, as increased to get back out to both the traditional communities that utilize these um, these resources, or did use utilize them, but have since lost them, as well as to just make them available to anybody interested in gar- gardening or farming uh, around the globe.
0: Talk about some of the the crops, the specific crops that Native Seeds works with. I know you guys work with probably a catalog of hundreds, if not thousands. But um, tell us about some of those crops specifically.
1: Well, they're primarily all domesticated crops, and our collection contains close to 2,000 individual um, collections from our region of focus. Um, Since they're domesticated, we're mostly talking about crops like corn, beans, and squash, but we also have a lot of other unique and some cases sort of rare types of crops that we deal with as well as the wild relatives of some of these things so wild chilies wild gourds wild beans wild squash um, but we also have crops that are actually not native to the new world but would have been brought over with um, early Spanish explorers missionaries slaves etc but that have become really adapted and adopted by cultures in Um, such as melon and watermelon, sorghum, peas, lentils, those sorts of things. Some of the New World crops that um, we also care for, because they have long been parts of these cultures, are things like amaranth and and chilies, of course, cottons, devil's claw, which is mostly a basketry type of material, but the um, seeds can also be eaten like a sunflower seed and sunflowers, um, tobaccos, tomatillos, things of that nature.
0: So as, as you mentioned, these crops primarily come from the desert southwest of the United States and also northern Mexico. Why are these crops important, or why should anybody care about the work that you all are doing?
1: Well, um, they're important for a couple of reasons. They're sort of the biological or genetic justifications. Um, a lot of these crops are adapted to fairly harsh environments. We have pretty low rainfall, and it's got a bimodal distribution. Um, So there are crops that have evolved adaptations to deal with low rainfall situations. Um, The soils here tend to be fairly alkaline, which isn't always really conducive to plant growth. So again, different adaptations have evolved to deal with those types of things. Uh, The specific insects or diseases to this region A lot of these crops could have genetic resistance to some of those. So the genetic reasons are the same as they are for any sort of diversity, that um, there are potential traits of interest to future agriculturalists and food producers. Um, Our food security depends on the availability of diversity, and that's found at the genetic level in plants, certainly, and most organisms. So there are those reasons. Um, And then there's also a more regional um, justification and that's really sort of this intersection of that biological diversity and the cultural diversity that's here. While the crops have sort of evolved genetic response to environmental conditions, the the cultures that have stewarded them through time have really been the facilitators of of the development of a lot of those traits. And so there is this fairly intense relationship between the plants and people um, in this region Most of the cultures that um, have survived or continue to thrive in our region are really agriculturally based cultures. And so when their agriculture is lost or various components of it, um, a lot of other aspects of those cultures are also lost or diminished. When agricultural seeds are not available to be planted of a traditional corn or bean or squash, then The planting ceremonies associated with that, the songs associated with those ceremonies, the foods that were produced from those crops are also lost, and the whole culture is sort of diminished in a way. So that's one of the other um, primary reasons that we care about conserving the genetic diversity from this region, both from a biological and cultural perspective, as well as the fact that a lot of them are just really great crops. People, you don't buy them in the supermarket, but there's some really good tasting things out there that people might be interested in.
0: You mentioned uh, a few times as you were talking that some of these crops are being lost or have been lost as you redistribute them to native communities. What are some of the forces driving the loss of the biodiversity
1: Well, a wide variety of things, and it sort of varies in intensity depending on um, where you are. The situation in the U.S. is probably a little bit different in many ways from the situation in northern Mexico, where some of the biggest threats right now come more from the drug trade in the Sierra Madre, for example, or 10 years of drought on the coast in southern Sonora, things of that nature. But the general reasons, you know, overall are just... um, are common, that more and more people are not sort of staying in an agricultural endeavor. They're finding work off-site or out of the, in, in the cities off of their farms, uh, particularly among the young people. And that's, that's potentially a larger problem, actually, on this side of the border in the U.S., where a lot of young Native Americans are, you know, preferring to uh, earn a better income than what is oftentimes possible by farming because it's really a hard way to make a living. So there are all of those and, and other sorts of reasons, just depending on, on the specifics of the situation.
0: Um, how has native seeds helped to prevent the extinction of some of these important agricultural crops?
1: Well, the main way is not only just by safeguarding them um, in a seed bank sort of situation, but then really primarily the longer-term strategy is to get them back out and in use in communities because they're domesticated, they rely on a relationship with people. You know, if you, you you can't just sort of fence off a wilderness area of domesticated crops because they don't tend to regenerate themselves from year to year. Their seed needs to be saved. It needs to be taken out of the pods or off of the cobs or whatever it might be, and then specifically planted in, in a subsequent year. So the longer-term strategy for making sure that these crops remain alive is um, – Just to promote their use, and so we have a program where we distribute back to the communities and individuals within our region um, their seed. It's free of charge, and it doesn't have to be from the seed. Doesn't have to be from their community. They they're free to look through the catalog and choose whatever they'd like. But it's uh, just a free seed policy for Native Americans from this region. We also work with communities to grow in larger quantities. Um, seeds that they're interested in sort of reintroducing back into their communities, and again, that's all provided free of charge to the communities. Um, and then we just have um, you know normal sales and donations through our store and website and mail order catalog. Those are the primary ways that um, we function to help ensure that these things do not become extinct.
0: Um, last. For our last podcast, I spoke with Emigdio Bailon, who's an expert Uh on uh, Highland Andean crops. And one of the things that he expressed concern about was um, genetically modified organisms and specifically genetically modified crops. Um, Have you seen any instances of contamination with genetically modified organisms?
1: Um, Well, we have not, but we don't have the luxury at the moment of testing all of our accessions, and that's probably about the only way you'd really be able to tell at this point. Um, I don't know that you can visually tell. I'm sure that, um, well, certainly in Mexico, we know that it's been a problem in the southern part of the country, and it may very well be uh, an equal problem in the northern part where we work, so it is something that we're sort of trying to take into consideration and figure out uh, how we exactly deal with it. While we don't test individual collections, we do. Uh, we are a, signature, a signatory to the Safe Seed Pledge, which indicates that we do not knowingly sell or distribute any um, germplasm with, that's been genetically modified.
0: Could you talk about the market share of some of these cultivars? This was another um, topic that we talked about with amygdia with crops like quinoa and maca and other crops that are from the Highland Andean areas. And he felt that, you know, there is market potential for some of these crops, even though for historical and cultural reasons, they haven't achieved that market potential. Do you see the same thing um, with some of the crops that you all work with? And is it something that would be advantageous to achieve greater market share for some of the crops that you work with?
1: Well, we definitely see the potential in a number of things that we have, and, and probably even more than that, we just haven't been able to sort of go through and individually evaluate each of our accessions. Um, but, yes, there, there's a yellow-meated watermelon from the Otham and Hopi communities that is probably the best watermelon I've ever tasted, and you know, why it hasn't sort of been commercialized and is being promoted more widely. I think it's just a function of education people You know, Native Seed Search can play a role in sort of getting that information out and um, helping to make it more widely known that some of these things exist. We do have partnerships with restaurants and chefs and um, sort of farmer market types of things, at least locally, where we are trying to sort of help push some of these things into them so that other um, growers or chefs or whoever might sort of pick them up and, and help promote them themselves. So I think there is a lot of potential there, and um, I think we'll see a lot more and more of these types of things making it
0: into the market. So, an organization like yours is very much um, suited for alliances with the private sector.
1: Absolutely. And we, in particular, we really try to work with Native American producers at this point, really trying to support their efforts. We can serve primarily as sort of a marketing tool or um, outlet for, you know, for their sales types of thing. Um, so we try to promote a lot of those sorts of partnerships as best we can.
0: And it seems like there still remains a lot of work to be done in just going through the enormous genetic catalog that you guys have and, you know, actually growing out some of the seeds and evaluating them from, a, from an agroecological perspective, but also from an economic perspective.
1: Absolutely. And we initiated a, a membership program. Well, actually, you don't even have to be a member of Native Seed Search to participate. But it's called the Gardeners Network, and it it really is an attempt to get gardeners across the U.S. and in other places around the world to grow a lot of these crops out and keep track of them. You know, record specific information that we provide to the participants, and really help us figure out well how you know, do terper beans grow really well in Seattle as as they do here in Tucson or you know, what's the best tasting melon out there at least among all the the participants and so it's an effort to try to bring in a lot of that information without having to go through them all each and every one of them ourselves.
0: right? And you're kind of speaking to this we've kind of been dancing around this issue as we as we talk about this but if you could talk more about the value of some of the more obscure cultivars that you maintain in the seed bank,
1: um, well, there is a um, a corn that's typically been grown or traditionally was grown across a much larger area than it is now in southern Sonora and northern Sinaloa, Sinaloa called Chapalote. And this is uh, a flint type of corn, and it's a beautiful chocolate brown color. So it's got a really unique color. Um, It's also, because it's a flint corn, when it grinds, it still, it doesn't grind super fine like a flower corn would. And so it tends to be used for things more like atoles or pinoles, where you're just adding water and sort of making almost a gruel type of thing. Um, But when it's used, when it's sort of um, substituted in like cookie recipes and things of that nature, even with mesquite flour or whole wheat flours, um, it imparts a really nice roasted flavor um, to the product. And this is something that's just really easy to grow. It was once very widespread, less so now, but it's actually a crop that we are working to try to get back into a lot of these communities and it probably has some pretty good economic potential as, um, as just that, a flower substitute in sort of specialty things. Um, there are some unique, well, I was going to say there are some unique chilies, but uh, the uniqueness in chilies is really mostly just about the type of spiciness and heat and where it hits you in your mouth and stuff. But um, I mentioned the watermelon. I think that's got some tremendous potential. Just trying to run through the list of things here really quickly.
0: Do you, Do you have anything that uh, has a lot of potential benefit more from an agroecological perspective? And when I say that, I mean you know potential agroforestry crops for uh, forage production or for nitrogen fixation, uh, green manure or cover crops, crops that attract beneficial insects and parasites and predators of other uh, harmful insects. That type of stuff. In,
1: yeah. Um... Well, it would be really great to know that sort of information. Unfortunately, we just don't really have the resources to try to collect a lot of that information. Uh, But certainly something like tepary beans or even black-eyed peas um, make great summer cover crops, at least here in the low desert. They're both fairly drought-tolerant. They're definitely um, temperature-tolerant crops. And they produce a lot of organic matter. So we use cowpea as our main summer cover crop. And tepary bean would be an equally good cover crop to use, both of which are nitrogen fixers. Um, And tepary bean is a local crop. So while I haven't read or done any analysis on this, we do see nodulation happening in the roots. So I'm assuming that they there is some um, local mycorrhizal fungi type of thing that, that makes the association with tepary beans. Cowpeas I would be less sure of as they're not a native to this region.
0: So as we kind of move from the specific to a, a broader issue in agricultural biodiversity, and this is a lot, the last of four podcasts uh, that are talking about this theme, could you talk about the future of agricultural biodiversity as you see it?
1: Well, I think that a lot of the sort of recent movement in both the organic industry and sort of the move back towards local food production um, stands to really contribute a lot of positive things to sort of the future of of agriculture and agricultural diversity. I think as those things become more entrenched and more sort of mainstream, if you will, um, I think more and more people will just sort of be aware of the issues, and, um, you know, there's always probably always going to be loss, and it's mostly a matter of the scale and the rapidity with which that happens. If we can slow that down and minimize what's being lost, then I think we'll all be a little bit better off. But I also think that a lot of the issues really that loom the most large are more sort of political, economic issues, those types of things. The the fact that, um, you know, they wrote into the new laws and constitution, if you will, in Iraq, the inability of farmers to save seed is really just sort of flies in the face of agriculture itself. And I think those are the types of issues longer term that stand to have a more negative impact than some of the more traditional things that there's been a lot of work on over the last 20, 50 years in terms of trying to save seeds and promote them and those types of things. But a lot of these socio-political economic issues are going to be have the potential to play a larger role in food security and agricultural diversity in the future, I think. Things like NAFTA, for example.
0: Spell it out. How, how is NAFTA affecting it?
1: Well, uh, it's likely through the whole NAFTA issue that the GMO corns made their way into Oaxaca to begin with. So when you have a situation that is really a political economic sort of thing that allows for the importation or exportation of crops that makes it um, cheaper for people to buy imported corn in a country that originated corn, you know, that's not a good thing for diversity down there. That, in fact, is likely to have a potentially larger impact on the maintenance of traditional races in Mexico than the GMO issue is, at least right now.
0: Right. And you mentioned the rapidity and the scale at which loss of agricultural biodiversity is taking place. Have there been any comprehensive and definitive studies that actually give us a sense of of the scale at which it's happening?
1: Not that I know of. There there probably have been. I don't know that they would be global per se, probably more regional or local. Um, And I might guess that it it maybe has slowed down a little bit, although that may go in pulses where it might slow down for a while and then increase due to, uh, for example, wars and famines, things like that. You know, again, not biological, not environmental types of things necessarily, but man-made types of, of issues that end up having a really negative impact on both what's happening in terms of agricultural biodiversity and people's access to it.
0: So speaking of man-made issues and, you know, potential catastrophes, do you have any sense of what the importance of agricultural biodiversity is going to be in in a context of global warming and climate change? <laughs>
1: that could be pretty important. <laughs> uh, yeah. And again, you know, I don't know how much research is really being done or has been done on the ability of crop plants in particular to respond to a lot of the changing environmental conditions that, you know, are either being sort of theorized or are being seen right now. I, I know that there actually has been some um in wheat, I believe, with some folks in Mexico sort of looking at increased CO2 levels, you know, what the effects of those are on crops and stuff. Plants have an uncanny ability to adapt to, to changing environments. And, um, again, it's sort of how fast those are happening that may have, um, that may impact a, a plant or a crop's ability to respond. And the genetic diversity that can be accessed and made available There's a lot of stuff that's been stored away over the years in seed banks, and so rather than it being an issue that the that the potential traits of, of interest have been lost from the field, it may just be more a matter of having to go back to those seed banks and collections, those international centers, and really go through a lot of that germplasm again.
0: Well, you yeah. you mentioned that uh, plants have an amazing ability to adapt to changing conditions. And I would argue that actually all life does. Um, but what we're seeing, uh, for example, with penguins in the Antarctic, is that certain species of penguins are winning, the ones that breed on land, and species of penguins like the Adelie penguin that breed on on ice are losing out. So I, I would imagine that it's going to be the same thing with plants and specifically with crops.
1: Yeah, I would guess probably so, although you... Um... You know, I don't know how many different species there are of penguins or how many races or varieties there might be within species types of things. But certainly for domesticated crops, because you have this intense human selection pressure that's been happening over, you know, thousands of years, um, and I'm really just sort of talking off the top of my head here, this is a total guess, but it may be that there's a, a slightly wider palette of traits or the genes that code for those traits to choose from to help deal from some of those things. And then again, maybe not. It, it has always been the case that species go extinct. Um, it will always be the case. And I guess the question for us is how much do we want to sort of change the natural, um, the natural trends that have happened in terms of species extinction? And, you know, I have no answers for that, but at the moment it doesn't seem like enough people are concerned about it.
0: Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you know agricultural biodiversity is going to be extremely critical um, in light of the, the climatological changes that are now underway because um, I think what's going to happen is we're going to find crops that are more well suited to a warmer climate and we might have to you know change our eating habits and, and our agricultural practices around some of these crops that turn out to be winners in a, in a new global climate.
1: Uh, I would certainly agree with that, and I think the interesting issue in that line of thought is access. You know, who who is going to be able to find out uh, what that what that better crop is for the warmer climate, and who's got the germplasm, and who can take it into production and distribution. So I think access um, is going to be a really big thing, and. You know, there's probably been a lot of sort of backdoor um, deals happening over the past 50 years or so. And we may be very surprised at our inability to um, to sort of equally access a lot of that stuff. And again, that sort of comes back to this socio-political economic sort of milieu that in the end (laughs) seems to have a really big impact on our daily lives.
0: Do you work at all with open patents on your seats?
1: we do not we consider ourselves stewards of these seeds we um we certainly don't patent anything we cannot prevent anybody from patenting anything um so i suspect it's something sort of like the gm issue that you know in upcoming years we may find ourselves faced with certain problems or issues that we just have to sort of develop a a more narrow policy about or something. But at the moment, we really try to promote the idea of sort of common heritage and um, open use. The more people that are using these things, the better.
0: So I guess when I when I refer to open patents, um, and, and you did answer my question, but uh, in the case of Linux, for example, Richard Stallman was concerned that people were patenting, you know, code that he had written 15 years before or 10 years before or something like that. Um, and so what he did was he created the general public license. And right. the the reason for him creating that wasn't to close off access to his code. It was quite the opposite. It was to prevent other people from coming in and taking that code and, and patenting it. So I'm wondering if doing a similar thing with germplasm, you know, patenting something to the general public or to the global community would be a, would be a wise strategy.
1: Um, you know, it might be a really good strategy. I guess the difficulty there has um, more to do with, um, well, who really has the legal right to do that? In other words, if uh, we've got Tohono O'odham crops in our collection, do we really have the right to do that, or should the Tahana O'odham do that? Um, and if the Tahana O'odham do that, then what are the Yaqui going to think, or the Salt River Pima? Um, you know, whose crops are they really? Um, so it sort of gets to the IPR issue again, and um, it's a really tough one to do. I we have no answers for that.
0: But Suzanne, what happens when Monsanto goes to Bolivia and finds a cultivar of quinoa that they like, and then they patent it? I mean, they've already gone out and said we have the legal right to do this, and if governments are recognizing it, you know, then it's it's clearly much more problematic than an organization like Native Seeds putting a, a general. You know, common license on something.
1: I I agree. I don't think that's a just system at all. I just don't have the the answers for for how you deal with that. And again, that happens mostly at the political level.
0: So to wrap up, if you could address the issue of what ordinary citizens can do to get involved with the work that Native Seeds does, but not only Native Seeds in in the area of agricultural biodiversity in general, what is what are maybe a few important things that ordinary citizens can do to help preserve our agricultural heritage?
1: Well, I think that they can just sort of continue to do and do more of a lot of what's been happening where there's really a focus on um, local production, local food systems, um, diversity in those. When you go more local, then you can sort of using some of the things we talked about earlier, sort of fine tune the crops that are being grown in any particular region, really matching the environmental conditions of that particular space to the crops that might have the best ability to, you know, produce in that area. So I think, again, just sort of using and promoting a lot of different crops, getting away from the, um, you know, the standard Thompson seedless grape or whatever it is, and or the few Red Delicious or Golden Delicious apples, or just so many more to choose from, and supporting efforts that really try to promote the use of a lot of the diversity. Organizations like Native Seed Search or your local CSA or... Um, any of those types of things. You know, I think it is happening, and I think it will happen more and more.
0: Okay, Suzanne, um, we'd like to thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, it's really been a pleasure to hear all your ideas and experiences and the work of Native Seeds.
1: Well, thanks very much for having us.
0: That does it for today's show. Thanks so much, Suzanne Nelson, for being with us. This wraps up a four-part series on agricultural biodiversity. Once again, I'd like to thank Walter Kaiser, Rex Dufour, and Amigdio Bailon for participating in the agroinnovations.com podcast. Next, we'll be focusing on community-supported agriculture. So please stay tuned. This is your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos.